to him are known. And we'll read Job 6 and 7, reading beginning at verse 1 of chapter 6. Then Job answered Eliphaz and said, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed, and my calamity weighed with it on the scales, for then it would be heavier than the sand of the sea. Therefore my words have been rash, for the arrows of the Almighty are within me. My spirit drinks in their poison. The tares of God are arrayed against me. Does the wild donkey bray when it has grass, or does the ox low over its fodder? Can flavorless food be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? My soul refuses to touch them. They are as loathsome food to me. Oh, that I might have my request, that God would grant me the thing that I long for, that it would please God to crush me, that he would loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have comfort, though in anguish I would exalt. He will not spare, for I have not concealed the words of the Holy One. What strength do I have that I should hope? And what is my end that I should prolong my life? Is my strength the strength of stones, or is my flesh bronze? Is my help not within me, and is success driven from me? To him who is afflicted, kindness should be shown by his friend, even though he forsakes the fear of the Almighty. My brothers have dealt deceitfully like a brook, like the streams of the brooks that pass away, which are dark because of the ice and into which the snow vanishes. When it is warm, they cease to flow. When it is hot, they vanish from their place. The paths of their way turn aside. They go nowhere and perish. The caravans of Timo look. The travelers of Sheba hope for them. They are disappointed because they were confident. They come there and are confused. For now you are nothing. You see terror and are afraid. Did I ever say, bring something to me or offer a bribe for me from your wealth or deliver me from the enemy's hand or redeem me from the hand of oppressors? Teach me and I will hold my tongue. Cause me to understand wherein I have erred, how forceful are right words, but what does your arguing prove? Do you intend to rebuke my words and the speeches of a desperate one which are as wind? Yes, you overwhelm the fatherless and you undermine your friend. Now, therefore, be pleased to look at me, for I would never lie to your face. Yield now, let there be no injustice. Yes, concede my righteousness still stands. Is there any injustice on my tongue? Cannot my taste discern the unsavory? Is there not a time of hard service for man on earth? Are not his days also like the days of a hired man, like a servant who earnestly desires the shade, and like a hired man who eagerly looks for his wages? So I have been allotted months of futility, and wearisome nights have been appointed to me. When I lie down, I say, when shall I arise and the night be ended? For I have had my fill of tossing till dawn. My flesh is caked with worms and dust. My skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is a breath. My eye will never again see good. The eye of him who sees me will see me no more. 
while your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. As the cloud disappears and vanishes away, so he who goes down to the grave does not come up. He shall never return to his house, nor shall his place know him anymore. Therefore, I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Am I a sea or a sea serpent that you set a guard over me? When I said my bed will comfort me, my couch will ease my complaint, then you scare me with dreams and terrify me with visions so that my soul chooses strangling in death rather than my body. I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Let me alone, for my days are but a breath. What is man that you should exalt him, that you should set your heart on him, that you should visit him every morning and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me and let me alone till I swallow my saliva? Have I sinned? What have I done to you, a watcher of men? Why have you set me as your target so that I am a burden to myself? Why then do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I will lie down in the dust and you will seek me diligently, but I will no longer be. The title of this sermon is from a well-known book by C.S. Lewis that his son described as a man emotionally naked in his own Gethsemane, where Lewis, grieving the loss of his wife, says things like, it's not that I'm in danger of ceasing to believe in God, but the real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. We see something like that in Job's continued lament, where here too we we find a man emotionally naked in his own Gethsemane. Here too is a grief observed. We see this grief in Job 6 and 7 directed really in in three directions. We see in Job chapter 6, Job crying out to his friends. We see in chapter 7, Job crying out to God. And throughout all of it, in a sense, we hear him crying out to us. So look at me first at Job crying out to his friends in chapter 6, which we could kind of divide in two parts. We see in verses 1 to 13, Job crying out to his friends about the pain inflicted by God. And then we see in verses 14 to 30, Job speaking about the pain inflicted by them. First by God. He says in verse 2, Oh, that my grief were fully weighed and my calamity laid with it on the scales. It would be heavier than the sand of the sea. That's why my words have been so extreme. Because my pain has been unbearable. He's answering Eliphaz's critique of his lament that we we looked at last week, saying, you don't understand. My grief is is heavier than all the sand of the seashore. The arrows of the Almighty have pierced me. The terrors of God are arrayed against me. And verse 4 is actually a quote of Psalm 38 or or vice versa, depending on which was written first. Suggesting again that, that Job is not sinning in saying the arrows of the Almighty have pierced him. David will say the exact same in Psalm 38 and God will then command the church to sing that psalm. And so Job, by saying what he does in verse 4, is not crossing the line. 
We need to, to read his words alongside the Psalms as the early church did. Ambrose, who discipled Augustine, said in a work called The Prayer of Job and David that while many have complained over human weakness and frailty, holy Job and holy David did so in a fashion superior to the rest. If we're not going to say that David sinned when he penned Psalm 38, then we should not say that about Job 6.4. Job is right. The covenant curses of Deuteronomy 28 have been aimed against him. And as Job 42.11 will say, the adversity that has come upon him, the Lord has brought against him. And so he goes on in verses 5 to 7, speaking of, of the diet of suffering that God has set before him. He says, donkeys don't bray when they have grass to feed on. Oxen don't complain when they have fodder. I'm not just crying out for no reason, but look at the diet that God has set before me. My children, my boils, my animals, my livelihood." And beyond that, my own wife has counseled me to curse God and die. Job will say in a a later chapter that his breath has become a stench to his wife, and, and now here are his friends telling him to just be happy because it's a blessed thing to endure this from God's hands. That was the essence of Eliphaz's counsel in chapter five. And so Job says, I cannot eat your flavorless food with no salt, your your egg with no yolk. It's loathsome. My soul will not be comforted by your words. Here he sounds a lot like the psalmist in Psalm 69, that messianic psalm. I looked for pity or for comfort, but found none. I looked for comforters, but found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. It's what David will say in Psalm 69 in that psalm that uh, the gospel writers apply to Christ. And so Job cries out in verse 8 for that one thing he longs for, that it would please God to crush him. That God would let loose his hand and cut him off. He says in verse 10, then I would have comfort. And notice why it is that Job says he would have comfort in God crushing him. Not because he is here sinfully wallowing in despair, but because he desires not to deny the words of the Holy One. Derek Thomas says he wishes for death because he is frightened that if the pain goes on, he may say something he's going to regret. And to deny the words of the Holy One is something he wants to avoid at all costs, and so it's better to die now than to blaspheme God. On this level, his call for God to strike him dead is an expression of piety, not irreverent flippancy, Thomas says. If God answers his request from chapter 3, then he would die knowing he'd maintained his integrity. Christopher Ash says he longs to die without betraying his faith in the goodness of God. And in this motivation, something of the heart of Job, the believer, is revealed. He longs for God to be honored by his life and by his death. And so he cries out, verse 11, for his life not to be prolonged, for his strength, not to, for his strength he says, is not the strength of, of stone or bronze. He's not a statue able to be unmoved by physical and emotional pain. 
Verse 13, he says he doesn't have the inner resources to help himself, and so he longs for God to take his life much as he did in chapter 3. That's verses 1 to 13, his, his crying out to his friends about his pain inflicted by God, about the arrows of the Almighty that have pierced him. And then in verses 14 to 30, it's about the arrows um, of his friends that have pierced him. And he's already hinted at this in verses 6 and 7, but now he places the focus squarely on the kindness withheld by his friends who have dealt with him deceitfully. We talked last week about the bad counsel of Eliphaz. Uh, Verse 15 suggests for us that he is speaking on the friend's behalf. And though his words may have begun with a measure of tact, they quickly spiraled into a cascade of tactless accusation. Telling Job that the tent of his children, or or, or the, uh, the tent cord, was plucked up because of his sin. That his sons were were far from safety and crushed in the gate because of something that Job had done. Eliphaz even had the audacity to say, if you just repent, then chapter 5, verse 25, your descendants will be many. What a thing to say when every one of his children have just been killed. And so Job says, you have withheld kindness from the one who is afflicted. A kindness should be shown to someone in my situation, but you have not done that. And other translations make clearer the uh, connection between the first part of verse 14 and, and the last, but he's actually saying they have forsaken the fear of God in failing to treat this suffering saint with kindness. Now, the ESV says, he who withholds kindness from a friend forsakes the fear of the Almighty. That's what they've accused Job of doing in Job 4, verse 6, not fearing God. But he says, by withholding covenant loyalty, this is that word hesed, they have forsaken God. To treat God's people with such callous disregard is to forsake the fear of the Lord. Let that not be missed, to for, uh, treat God's people with such callous disregard, to treat them with such inhumanity, um, so unsympathetically is to forsake the Lord. And I was struck even as we were reading the, the description of the office of deacon, how it says that through them our Lord identifies the needy as his own representatives in our expression of sympathy and benevolent service on earth. As it goes on in the charge, it says that the, uh, the deacon is to be sympathetic and self-denying in the ministry of Christian mercy, that is the mercy of Christ. And the same is true of the elder as they carry out their, their uh, work of, of shepherding, even of disciplining, that these are to be things that are done with a heart of sympathy. I think Matthew Henry said something uh, on this verse, something along the lines of of inhumanity or non-sympathy is impiety and irreligion. All of us, as we uh, deal with those who are afflicted like Job, are to treat them with kindness and with sympathy. But that's not what they have done. They have treated him deceitfully, appearing to be one thing, but in reality, being another. 
That's what he illustrates in verses 15 to 21, comparing them to a dry wadi, a a ravine that holds water in season, but when it's warm, is dry and empty. So he's saying, in effect, I I thought that you held water to relieve me, but when I looked, I saw that it was dry. From afar, it looked like maybe you were going to come and comfort me, but once we got a little bit closer, I realized there was nothing to relieve me. He says, like the caravans of Tima and travelers of Sheba in verse 19, I had high hopes, but like them, I am disappointed and confused. For verse 21, there is nothing. That's what you're like to me. Your words bring no relief. But verse 21, you see my distress and you're afraid of me. It's like you don't want to identify and sympathize with me. And so you distance yourself from me by accusing me of sin. And so he pleads with them in verses 22 to 30, very simply, to teach him where he has erred. And if they can't, to stop rebuking him, but look him in the eye and take his suffering seriously. And this call that he gives to look him in the eye and take his suffering seriously is simultaneously a call to us. This illustration that he gives about that dry wadi that brings no relief is simultaneously a call to all of us. Uh, One commentator, Tremper Longman, says, the sad fact is that the people of God, like Job's friends, are often like a dried-up wadi, promising relief, but not delivering. The story of Job's treatment of his friends, or by his friends, is a warning about offering facile advice to those who suffer. It is not adequate to offer pat answers to people's problems, but we must approach them with compassion, thoughtfulness, and sympathy. Bob Kellerman, in his book on counseling under the cross, shows how Luther did this. He was uh, writing to a student whose wife and son had died in childbirth. Luther said, this feeling of sorrow is not displeasing to God, but is an expression of the very thing that God has implanted in you. Nor would I account you a man to say nothing of a good husband if you could at once throw off your grief. Writing to another pastor whose infant son had just died, Luther tried to direct him to Christ, but but then said, but all this is vain, a story that falls on deaf ears when your grief is so new. I therefore yield to your sorrows. Luther gave these brothers permission to grieve. He approached them with compassion and kindness as Job the prophet calls us to in verse 14. Let us be more like Luther and less like Eliphaz. Job cries out to his friends in chapter 6 and then in chapter 7 he cries out to God and basically in verses 1 through 10 names his sorrow and then in verses 11 to 21 asks God why he won't leave him alone. He speaks more generally in verses 1 and 2 of of mankind east of Eden and and the sorrows that men endure and then begins to speak more specifically of himself in verse 3 saying, I have been allotted months of futility. And note how that, that confirms what we said a few weeks ago about how some time must have passed where Job is suffering in loneliness before his friends even catch word of his suffering and come to visit him. I've been allotted months of futility, wearisome nights, have been appointed to me. I can't sleep. 
When I lie down at night, I say, when will night be over? For I toss all night, and, and my flesh is caked with worms and dust as I lie here in the ash heap. He says, my skin is cracked and breaks out afresh. My days are spent without hope, and my eyes will never again see good. He laments his suffering in verses 1 to 7, and then says in verses 8 to 10, the eye of him who sees me will see me no more. While your eyes are upon me, I shall no longer be. And remember, he's, he's speaking now to God. And so the you of verse 8 is God. God is the one watching him, who he says in verse 8, will one day look for him, but not be able to find him. When Job goes to the grave of verse 9, what is Job saying? He's saying despite all the suffering of verses 1 through 7, he still believes that God will look for him. Howell Jones says instead of Job turning his back on God, he, he thinks of the possibility that God may turn his face toward him. Is this not an echo of grace in Job's heart? Ash calls it the language of a believer. Job is lamenting, yet still as a believer, who will not restrain his mouth, verse 11, but will speak in the anguish of his spirit, complaining in bitterness of soul of how God has set a guard over him, scared him with dreams and, and terrified him with visions, so that his soul would choose death by strangling rather than life, which he loathes. And so he asks God to leave him alone. And then in verses 17 and 18, in something of a, of a reverse Psalm 8, which we sang earlier, he says, what is man that you make so much of him and set your heart upon him? Why do you visit him every morning and test him at every moment? It's as if he takes the theology of Psalm 8 and, and turns it upside down to argue that God's treatment of him is not consistent with how God treats his people. Ambrose said, Job prays like David in the Psalms of Lament on the grounds that God is forgetful of his own work and the generosity and grace which he had bestowed upon man. It's not the language of, of verse 19. Verse 21, again, the language of a believer who believes that God is able to pardon sin. And again, verse 21, that God will look for him when he lies down in the dust. Derek Thomas says of that last phrase in verse 21, though bruised and his relationship with God under severe strain, Job throws out one final retort, knowing God essentially cares. It's as if he says, you'll be sorry when I'm gone. Despite all that is happening to him, Job still thinks of God as one who loves him. And so we can say of this whole lament, though he cries out for God to leave him alone, in the very act of begging God to depart from him, he is in fact approaching him. In the very act of begging God to depart from him, Job is in fact approaching him. Now one writer says this prayer testifies to his clinging to God in hope and faith for he who laments freely has hope that his words may touch God's compassion. He still clings to God. He does so in approaching him through prayer. 
He does so in in continuing to affirm his sovereignty as the one who allows these trials to come. He does so in referring to God as the Holy One in 6 verse 10, whose words he will not deny, and confessing in 7 verse 8 and 721 that this God whose arrows have pierced him is a God who yet seeks him and loves him. Do you see the faith of this stricken believer on display? And can you hear that the faint echo of another faithful sufferer on a cross who will cry out, my God, my God, who will cry out to the one whose arrows pierce him, forsaken by God and yet convinced that the one who pierces him is my God. Here we see in shadow form the faithful suffering of our Savior, which those parallels to to Psalm 38 or Psalm 69 make clear as those are Davidic and Messianic Psalms where again, Christ is speaking through his 400 Davids in a way that sounds a lot like Job 6 and 7. Job, as we've seen in the last few weeks, is a shadow of the one to come. And in that sense, he cries out also to us. And not only in in teaching us something about God's unfolding plan of redemption, not only in showing us a little picture and preview of what God is going to do through the faithful suffering of his servants, but as Job's suffering points to the suffering of Christ, we who are united to Christ, Romans 8 and Philippians 3 says, uh, must share also in that suffering. And Job 6 and 7 says, teach us something about suffering well. And so in this last point, as you think of how Job cries out to us, I want to make four applications from Job 6 and 7, and specifically of how Job 6 and 7 speak to the work of the office bearers who've just been ordained in our presence this morning. First of all, we see in this passage, brothers, that you must prepare God's people to suffer. Job suffers faithfully because he had been taught about this God to whom he clings. He had been taught that this God is sovereign, Job 6.4, Job 7.18. That he is is not like the, the God of the deist or of the open theist who is either uninvolved or unable to control what happens, but a God who is perfectly sovereign. Job 6 verse 10 is also perfectly holy. And see, he is not sinning in what he's allowing to transpire. But Job 7.21, he loves and cares for his people. He seeks after them diligently. Job holds on to these cardinal truths about the character of God which uphold him in the midst of his suffering because he had been taught well. And so elders and deacons, you must prepare God's people to suffer. If they are united to the one to whom Job points, they will suffer. We'll hear that next week in the profession of faith form, where those young people who will uh, profess their faith in the the presence of God and his people, hear that charge from 1 Peter 5, after you have suffered a little while, The God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Every time we witness a baptism, we pray in that prayer of response and thanksgiving, Lord, uphold this child in their hour of trial. 
Because for both the baptized child and the professing adolescent, the Christian life that they are being brought into is cross-shaped. Let's prepare them to suffer. Teaching them these truths about the character of God and the expectation of the Christian life. Second, as you do so, give God's people permission to grieve. One of the glaring problems with Eliphaz's counsel to which Job responds is that Eliphaz has not given him permission to grieve, but has in fact denied him the voice of lament. He has not, like Luther, yielded to his sorrows, but he misses the fact that his feelings of sorrow are not displeasing to God. Give God's people permission to grieve and show kindness to the one who was afflicted, Job 6.14, by weeping with those who weep. Related to that is a, a third application. Um, you've just been, been charged, uh, elders especially, to guard the good deposit. Uh, part of that good deposit is what we have in the Psalms. And so one of the lessons that we would learn from this grief observed is to treasure the gift that God has given his church in the Psalms. It's no coincidence that Luther, whose pastoral counsel allowed suffering saints to grieve, was a man who loved the Psalms, who called them a little Bible and believed that they taught us how to pray. We live in a day where many in the church would rather do away with the Psalms and have other songs take principal place in our worship, but you must resist that urge. Years ago, Carl Truman wrote an article called What Do Miserable Christians Sing? Where he said, in the Psalms, God has given the church a language that allows even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. Rather, allows allows us to express even the deepest agonies of the human soul in the context of worship. That doesn't, doesn't tell us we have to get right and happy before we belong in worship, but we are allowed even to express our sorrows in the context of worship. And Truman said he, he once was at a, a church meeting where someone uh, suggested that the Psalms should take a higher priority in the worship of the church, and that person was then scolded and told that they obviously have no concern for evangelism. People may tell you, if you really want to be an evangelistic church, we must rid ourselves of the Psalms. But Truman says, on the contrary, it is the exclusion of the experience and expectation of the psalmist from our worship that has in large part crippled the evangelistic efforts of the church. For by excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate, both inside and outside the church. So he says, let us learn once again to lament. Read and sing the Psalms over and over until you have the vocabulary and grammar needed to lay your heart before God in lamentation. He says, if you do this, you will have the resources to cope with your own periods of suffering, despair, and heartbreak, and and to keep worshiping and trusting God like Job, even through the darkest of times. He says, you will also develop a greater understanding of fellow Christians whose agonies of bereavement, depression, or despair sometimes make it hard for them to sing Jesus wants me for a sunbeam with gusto every Sunday. 
You'll have more credible things to say to those shattered and broken individuals to whom you will be called to be a witness of God's unconditional mercy and grace to the unloved and unlovely. Treasure the gift that God has given his church in the Psalms. And then fourth, as you minister to people in pain, not forbidding lament, but allowing them to grieve, make sure that in their grief, you point them to Christ. The Christ to whom a psalm like Psalm 38 or Psalm 69 points, the the Christ to whom the cries of Job point in, in shadow form, the man of sorrows whose shadow we see in those psalms and in this passage and all throughout the book of Job who was pierced with the arrows of the Almighty, who cried out on the cross, how long? Who was deserted by his friends, having no one to comfort him? As, as, as the, sh- the shepherd was stricken, the sheep scattered. As one of his closest friends denied him, as another betrayed him. Having no one to comfort him. And yet in the midst of it all, did not deny the words of the Holy One, but was faithful unto death. And because he was, we, beloved, can know that even our greatest suffering is temporary. As we confess in Lord's Day 16, we are assured in deepest attacks of dread and temptation that Christ our Lord, by suffering unspeakable anguish, pain, and terror of soul on the cross, but also earlier, has delivered me from hellish anguish and torment. So you point them to the fact that the psalms of lament, the church sings, Christ has taken on his lips as he entered in to deepest distress for us so that soon the night of weeping of which we sang earlier shall be the morn of song. Point them to Christ. You prepare God's people to suffer. Give them permission to grieve. Treasure the gift that we have in the psalms and point them to the Christ of the psalms whose suffering guarantees that ours one day will cease. And after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Father in heaven, we love your word and how it shows us your son. We pray that you would give grace to uh, every one of us gathered here this day, and we pray especially that you would give your grace, uh, the grace of your Holy Spirit to these men who've just been ordained as elders and deacons to use that very word to comfort your people, to prepare your people to suffer, to uh, point your people to Christ, to uh, give your people permission to grieve as we take on our lips these uh, words that Christ has first. Help us now as we sing in Jesus' name.